This ordinary time, we've been thinking about living our everyday ordinary lives as they present themselves to us day in and day out. And this week, I thought it would be appropriate maybe to think some a bit that ordinary times are almost always troubled times, or at least have some troubled associated with them. It's beginning to feel a bit to me like the summer of 68 all over again, kind of a summer of, of discontent, of terror and politics and race. And I made, uh, I mean, I didn't do this on purpose, and it's only in hindsight that I thought about what it did to me, but over, over the last week or two, I've um, watched both OJ things. I watched that movie about um, the you know horrendous things in the Catholic Church in Boston, Spotlight. And then the other day I watched The Big Short. And like that's enough to make you, you know, wonder about all of society, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you put those three things together and if you're not careful, one could get depressed. I think it was the next day, I don't remember for sure, but I think it was the next day after the horrible shootings in Dallas that Debbie and I, uh, I Debbie had an appointment and I went with her at USC and we walked into this room and this beautiful young black lady walked in who was the nurse <clears throat> and everything in me wanted to put my arms around her and say, you matter to me. It's like I've developed a little tick. When I see people of color, I, I want to say, can I just hug you and tell you that you matter to me? And when I see a cop, everything in me wants to say, thank you for your service. Thank you for putting yourself out there in the middle of all this, can you say in church, crap. And I think we have an example for us in the scriptures for living in these kind of troubled times where religion seems to be turning bad or at least be hijacked by people. We're increasingly marginalized by our society because of this as people grow weary and skeptical of religion. But we've got this book in the Bible called Daniel where we see Daniel as a model of what it can be like for the church living in troubled times or in exile. So just to remind you quickly of the story, God's people are taken into Babylon. They're, of course, discouraged, disoriented, disillusioned. They find themselves surrounded by a culture that feels to them deeply alien. Can you feel that? They feel themselves surrounded by a culture that seems to them deeply alien. They're coming under increasing pressure from the society around them and the state alike to compromise their unique identity and their life as followers of the one true God, and to embrace the relativistic and morally diverse surrounding culture. So of course they begin to be fearful about the future, and of course they mourn what's lost. And like Daniel, we're now living through such a cultural transition, a kind of dislocation and disorientation. But somehow Daniel finds the ability to not bow down to the powers and to not begin to define himself by what was going on around him. He maintained what you might think of as identity integrity. Can you feel that? A solidness of identity. That does not have to include a denial of reality. In fact, I would say an identity integrity that is found by denying reality is not an integrity at all. 
But embracing, or at least noticing, or being attentive to the reality around us, embracing it where we can, speaking to it where we must, dealing with it as we should, it's precisely in that sort of conversation with what's real around us that we find an integrity of identity. And I want to say this morning that I think that is best found in the practices of seeing a different reality. And this is why we read what we read this morning. Set your hearts on. Set your minds on. Or Jesus, choose that which is most important to you. Seeing a different reality is, of course, what makes Elijah Elijah. He knew that while things were crazy around him, there were chariots of fire. So it makes Jesus, Jesus. When all the politics and social realities of his life were arrayed against him and he's about to be arrested in the garden and he knows where this story's going, he says, but can't you see I could call on myriads of angels? It doesn't deny the present reality. It doesn't say this, these soldiers aren't real. It doesn't say that the, the motives behind Caesar and Rome and Herod and Pilate, it doesn't say that those political and social motives aren't real. It just says, but I don't live according to that reality. I don't gain my identity from that reality. I gain my identity from this other reality, in this case symbolized by angels he could have called upon. Or Stephen. Those rocks were real. And they hurt. As did the rejection of the people he was trying to help. As did the bewilderment of where's my God as these boulders rained upon him. But taking his last breath, he looks up and through the heavens he sees a door open and there's another reality in which he can give himself peacefully even to a brutal death. Or John, when he's exiled on Patmos. I mean, there's a lot of ways to read Revelation and I'm aware of most of them, if not all of them. And I know one of the ways that the scholars over the years have read Revelation, it was that it had at least as a motivation, the desire to comfort God's people as they went through extraordinarily difficult things, to see this other reality. If you look at me here, this is so important. Look, I know what the news is telling us. I know what talk radio is saying. I know what happens around the water cooler at work, but here's what I want you to do. Make that all backdrop, and then in relief from it, recall that passage in Revelation. Who is worthy? Who can possibly make any sense out of the hell of this world? How can this ever mean anything? It all seems tied up in this scroll. Where who can know this, this is impossible, it's sealed, and it just nobody's going anywhere. But then John looks and he sees a lamb who is worthy to unroll the plan of God and to insist that it will come to its divine telos. That the ups and downs and the, the vagueness of human history is not determinative, it's real. We're not dualists, we don't deny things, it's real, but it's not determinative. It's penultimate, it's not ultimate. And we find our reality in that ultimateness. Some of you are old enough to remember the prophet Larry Norman. 
and I had provocative ways of saying things. And I don't remember this song. It's The Great American Tragedy, maybe, something like that. Uh, but I remember these lyrics. Larry said, the politicians all make speeches while the newsmen all take note. They exaggerate the issues as they shove them down our throats. Is it really up to them whether this country sinks or floats? And I wonder who would lead us if none of us would vote. Now that's not a call to not vote. <laughs> that's a call to say that God alone is the source of all true authority. And this is what Daniel and Stephen and Jesus and John on Patmos saw, that it's God who controls the rise and fall of regimes and rulers. And knowing this, though in Babylon, Daniel was able to stay true to his real identity. Well, when we come to Colossians, the, um, the issues are similar. They're not exact, but they're similar. They're, but they're more religious. I mean, what Paul's doing here in, in uh Colossians 3 has to do with identity issues, but in this case, they're more religious, less cultural. And what Paul's warning against here is bad or false or misled religion. And specifically in this case, a blend of Judaism that was diluting the particularity of Christ. And so his antidote, as we heard read this morning, is a kind of full-on differentiation a distinctness, which are really vague synonyms for the biblical words for holiness. I think I've said to you before, a great way of thinking about this is if you ever have to have a biopsy, first of all, I'm very sorry, that's never good news. And if you ever have to read a pathology report that has these words in it, poorly differentiated cells, that is a very bad thing. Because that means what's supposed to be pure liver or pure lung or pure brain has now been somehow mutated to where it's poorly differentiated. That's cancer. And what Paul is seeing is that as these early followers of Jesus are trying to work these out, especially people who'd grown up in Judaism, that they were living in some cases poorly differentiated lives. And he's calling them to a discreteness, to a, a particularity that where they're fully differentiated. The Judaism of Paul's day is very heavy-handed. And in that sense, it was a kind of ancient political correctness. It really was. There were just certain things you couldn't say, you couldn't do. And it had a heavy-handed moralism attached to it as well. And I just want to say in our day, here's how this works. I see, I, you, you all know me well enough to know that I dearly love young people, but as a professor um, w uh, of undergraduate and graduate and doctoral students, I see this especially amongst young people. It can become really cool to change who you hate. So just as an example, let's just say, our culture used to hate GBLT people and all the other letters that go with it now. But we don't hate them anymore. Now we hate the people who somehow don't deal with them the way we want to deal with them. And I want you all to just look me in the eye and hear me say this. You're still a hater. Just change who you hate. And Paul says that doesn't work. We're aiming for something higher here than the cultural norms of political correctness or of generational correctness. 
We're aiming for something much higher, in which there's no slave or Scythian, barbarian, free. Christ is in all and of all, and we don't play by those rules. That's, we don't play identity politics. We have an identity integrity that's rooted in Christ, who is the head and we are his body. He came and announced and demonstrated and embodied the kingdom of God. And we find our identity in Christ and in his kingdom, following him there. So culturally derived norms of spirituality can have an appearance of wisdom, Paul wants to say. They can be partially true, but they're like a shadow world presided over by the powers of this world. So I want to say like, for instance, presided over the principality and power called hate. So you shift who you hate, looks really cool on Facebook or in conversations on a campus like this, but it's still under the powers of this world, which Paul wants to say is decaying and will perish forever in favor of the new heavens and the new earth. And so following norms that come from that world won't get us where we want to go. So then how do we get where we want to go? Paul's answer is you set your hearts and your minds on things above. Or as the message gets it, pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along your eyes to the ground absorbed with the things right in front of you. Why? Because we're dualists and they're not real? No. Then why? Because it's an incomplete perspective. It's real, but it's incomplete. Until you take that reality and situate it in the coming of God's kingdom. Doing what Paul says, looking up and being alert to what's going on around Christ. Paul wants to say that's where the real action is and we want to learn to see things from his perspective. So the Christ, that um, Christian spirituality then is something like we're trying to fit our life with its attitudes and its behaviors into God's new world, which is coming into being to replace the world that currently exists. And I just want to say to you, that's the realm from which a life of genuine and good religion exists. I have all the empathy in the world for people who are sick of bad religion. I have complete empathy with them. And I'm completely sympathetic with our culture's growing inability to distinguish between the two. I saw a spotlight. Man, that's, you don't get any more religious than that culture. And yet it was a Trojan horse for some of the worst evil I can imagine. I get it. But I don't do anybody any good by finding my identity in their confusion. I can stay connected to their confusion with genuine empathetic love. But I only do good by finding my identity somewhere else and doing my best to announce and embody and demonstrate good religion, genuine Christ-like spirituality. So this means, Paul says, that certain patterns of living must go and that new ones must be put on. So he says, put to death or rid yourself. And, and this is meant to help us see a very passionate intentionality towards this, to rid ourselves, as the message puts it, of sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like doing when you feel like it, and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. 
So Paul says, change the way you think about and interact with the other as a way of, of like, like this is a, a sign of its embodiment, I hear Paul saying. So change the way you would think about and interact with the other. Have you noticed lately that this really sort of obscure word is finding our way in our political and social discourse? Xenophobia? Who would ever thought that you'd hear xenophobia on talk radio or cable news? But it's coming into our culture, and you might not know exactly what it means. You know what it means? It means the fear or the hatred of the other, or at least, you know, of, of that which is foreign. So you find that, it, that, that, you actually hear that word. It's a strange academic-sounding word, you know, finding its way into our public discourse. And Paul says that's not the way it's to be with you. Change the way you think about, let's take, for instance, the word Scythian. There's another word you don't, probably didn't wake up this morning thinking you are going to go hear the word Scythian. Why would Paul put that? Of all the choices Paul could make of people groups, why would he include that in his list? And the reason is the Scythians for Paul's um, audience in Colossae were sort of the icky ones. They were the ones least like us and therefore the most easily dismissed. And Paul wants to say, I want you to see that Christ is all and is in all. And so that, for me, raises the question sincerely, how do I come to see this? To really see, you know, thinking of the um, undertones and overtones of that word see that would imply understanding. How do I come to comprehend and embrace this? How do I come to stop the hate? not just choosing who I do hate. And here I want to take a moment, a little sideline. I should have warned you, this is going to be about five minutes longer than normal. And partially because we're going to take a little side, we're going to take a little side break here. And I want to take a moment to explain to you that this is why we have an emphasis on beauty and quiet. Because learning to see differently is a practiced reality probably 20 or 25 years ago or something, I lose track of time for these things, but I found myself having a little burgeoning interest in art. And I stink at it, like really bad. Seriously, I'm not just being nice. I like stink at it. And one of Debbie Nye's friends, uh, Carol Wimber, was a fairly accomplished artist. And I remember talking to her about it one day. You know, I can't even draw, you know, I'm horrible, blah, blah, blah. And she gave me this book that I'll never forget called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And this is a whole book about learning how to see the world differently. I remember Carol said to me, well, if you can't draw a candlestick, draw the negative space around the candlestick. I'm like, what in the H-E double toothpicks is negative space? You see, I couldn't see that. Are you tracking with me here? I had never even heard of the term negative space much less have the capacity to see it. And so this is not the only reason we engage in art and beauty and visual arts here, but it's one of the main reasons, is that I am convinced for myself and for any of you for whom this is also edifying, that for us learning to see the world differently so that we can both acknowledge the foreignness of the Scythian while staying completely connected to them through the love of God. So that we are able to see what's really real. And this has to be practiced 
And so we give us, we give you opportunity here week in and week out to practice it. Now, keeping it real, as you know, I'm wont to be, I've had, Debbie and I have had, I don't know, I lose, I don't measure these kind of things, but I'll bet we've had five or 10 really close friends or, or families come to Holy Trinity and say to us, I don't know, we love you guys, and you know, we, we love Todd's teaching, but uh, we just don't get, you know, the emphasis on liturgy and beauty and blah, blah, blah. And I always say back to them, I get it. But I always have in the back of my mind, not these words, but I found these words from the poet Mary Oliver that, that help put words to what I feel when I hear that. And it's this, knowledge has entertained me, shaped me, and it has failed me. There is still something to discover which the world of learning will never bring us. Something in me still starves. And this is the power of beauty and quiet to help fill that starvation. So the art and discipline of seeing means that we're learning to open our eyes as we go through life and we, and we look at things but if you're like me, you rarely see. Are you feeling me here? It's not that your eyes are closed or that they don't work. I mean, maybe they don't, but you know what I mean? Like you might have some thick glasses, but basically you're able to look at the world, but I want you to begin to wonder with me, how often are we seeing what's real? And not through the filters that this world gives us. So the spiritual practice of beauty is at least, it's more, but is it at least for me a way to recover vision? Some of you maybe know the name Esther DeWall. In her book, uh, Lost in Wonder, she talks about that for months, I don't know how long she did it, but for a good long period of time, she would carry around with her wherever she went a magnifying glass. Because, like I, like I see this microphone, but imagine the shift in perspective if I took a microscope and could see the tiny little mesh behind the boulder metal mesh that's on top of this. Imagine the shift in perspective by just taking a magnifying glass and looking at a flower or a bee or a microscope. And it just taught her to learn to see what's really real. Because the power of, of attentive quietness is at least this is what I'm staking my life's work on, is that it has a power to reorient and redirect our lives, to help us see in new ways, to have a kind of focused mindfulness. And this, I want to say, requires the patient practice of quiet. This gives us the freedom we're seeking because we all live in a constant distraction and it gives us a distorted lens for life, which then leaves us consistently distressed. An Australian monk said, the most deafening voice is our own. Desires, fears, anxieties, and obsessive worries lead to a treadmill of thoughts that come from a constantly chattering mind. Well, I invite you, come with us week in and week out. Quiet your chattering mind here. If you don't do it anywhere else, come find an hour and 15 minutes here at Holy Trinity and quiet your chattering mind. A Benedictine nun wrote, if I'm slavishly attached to the previous moment, or if I'm already living in tomorrow's fearful moments, then I'm not free for the moment of the eternal now. Or as Dekasad said, I'm not free to practice the sacrament of the present moment. Well, if you're having a hard time being attentive to your life, really come here, learn to do it. 
For the antidote to such distraction is learning to live in the present moment with total attention, and we can't do it if we can't learn to quiet our minds. And we learn this total attention in part, I want to say, by art and quiet. One master of the spiritual life put it this way, what if the basic command of religion is not do this or don't do that, but simply look, be attentive, notice God in your world, and follow him there. So seeing on a deeper level, seeing with clear particularity, gives us an important aspect, I want to say, of Christian spirituality. For there is, Dewall wrote, a sacramental quality to the particular. Look at me. Jesus said, come, follow me. Well, it means by definition, I can't follow Michelle. There is a deep particularity in Christian spirituality. Come, follow me. And this, not any old thing, this is my body. This is my blood. So the very sacramentalism that if we're here week in and week out, we say we value, has at the heart of it an intense particularity. Absolutely intense. But a particularity that finds its way by learning to see God in the world such that with its high in relief particularity, it's able to stay connected to the broken world as Jesus did. This is my body broken. This is my incarnation from the Trinity for the sake of others. This is my body given for you. So see, it's a particularity with a deep connectivity. And we have to learn to actually see this. So I want to say that for me, beauty and quiet are important stones on the path to following Jesus. To clothing ourselves, as Paul said, with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's Beauty and quiet are stones to bearing with each other and forgiving one another. And then over all these virtues, putting on love. Having the settled state in my soul to do you good. That is a learned behavior. I don't care how reformed you are and how up on grace you are. Grace does not paralyze you. Grace does not make you not matter. These are learned things by the grace of God. But we participate by, if nothing else, noticing the grace of God, noticing the goodness of God. Notice that the air we breathe is permeated by the goodness and grace and power of God. But those things are noticed. And they're noticed by learning to notice them. Okay, that was all free. Now we'll, now we'll finish the sermon. <laughs> so... Yeah, it can get a little depressing to, in the same week, watch Spotlight, both OJ things and the big short. That can get a little depressing. But in my mind, I sometimes playfully say to myself, but God is not stumped. God's not like pacing the golden streets of heaven, you know, with his hands, you know, anxiously holding his little anxious head, you know, saying, oh, myself, you know, like, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? I didn't anticipate Trump or, you know, or, you know, uh, oh my God, you know, this isn't like checkmate. No, this is find God active in our world as it presents itself to us. Not the world we would rather have with better kids or a stronger economy. Or couldn't we find two better candidates than this? But the world as it actually presents itself to us 
how do I make myself present to that in, by, and through the love of God for the sake of others? And I just want to say that's learned behavior and that that kind of behavior has been funded for 2,000 years by learning to be attentive and focusing. And that is done very well through quiet and beauty. It allows us to set our hearts and minds, to truly and firmly decide what our pearl and treasure is, and then to align ourselves there, aligning our life and money and energy to that. So last thing here, I hear in these parables of Jesus an invitation to notice what it is we really want, what we genuinely desire or long for, is in the end what, what most consistently sets our hearts and minds. And so Jesus asks us to make a decision about this. Paraphrasing here, but he says something like, there is God in his kingdom, in his new world, which is meant to break into our world through our followership of Jesus. And then Jesus asks, is this your treasure? Is this your treasure such that in joy you would sell all that you have to get it? Is God in his kingdom and your followership of Jesus in it? The one great pearl of price, the one pearl that has so great a value that it would make perfect sense to sell all that you have to buy it. Take a moment now. You might want to bow your head or Close your eyes or whatever you need to do to make yourself attentive. And maybe reaffirm your decision about that this morning. Yes, Lord. You and the rule and reign of God, as you taught about it, as you modeled it in your way of being, as you showed it in your deeds of power, yes, this is my treasure. Yes, this is the one pearl of so great a value that it makes perfect sense for me to enter a life of thoughtful, quiet beauty, to reorganize the very aspects of my humanity around this one great thing. Amen.